Welcome to Major Revisions, the world's leading five-star rated ecology podcast. I am Jeff Atkins from Virginia Commonwealth University, and for at least the next six weeks, also the University of Richmond. And with me, as always, is Grace Wilkinson from Iowa State via St. Olaf, and John <laughs> Walter from the University of Virginia. Happy second anniversary a couple weeks later, folks. Woo! Woo! We made it two years. Yeah, apologies for the brief uh, hiatus, but we're going to throw these up a little faster. Than you usual. know, this is officially a long-term experiment, because this started as an experiment, and I think now that we're on to two years, we can go ahead and call this a long-term experiment. Nice. So, good work, folks. When do we get into the monitoring phase? I think after we um, surpass the usual time frame of an NSF grant, so just past three years. Nice. We need a no-cost extension. Yes. <laughs> I, I, th I think we need five to be eligible for an LTRAB. Good point. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> okay, we definitely we, we definitely got to do a fun a follow-up to the NSF or a podcast here, NFS Part 2. Yes. But I, I have a question for you guys. Did you get your free taco today? Because it's National Free Taco Day. Who taco is Bell. giving out free tacos? Dude, if you steal a base in the World Series, you get to steal a taco. And oh, from home, American from hero Mookie Betts of the 2018 world champion Boston Red Sox stole a base. Okay, okay, let's clarify. There's a huge asterisk on this. This is from Taco no, is Bell. Not. So Taco is taken very loosely. It's tortilla with meat and cheese. It doesn't even have to have meat. It's free country. Meat that might make you very ill. Look, meat is... We're not, we're not here to litigate what is and what isn't meat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Like, I know when I say meat, you have a definition in your head, Wait. but by the USDA standards, it may be different. Did you hear that's actually getting litigated in Missouri right now? I, I what is, is it meat? Anyways, we'll follow up on that I in a later episode. No doubt. <laughs> I went to a Halloween party where I heard the most riveting story um, from a one of my son's friend's dad who just litigated the hell out of a case for Hot Pockets. <laughs> <laughs> Fascinating! It was amazing. <laughs> I never knew that world was so interesting. Hey, hey, can we can we splice in some Jim Gaffigan quotes right now? <laughs> Hot pocket. We're just gonna get we're gonna get sued for that. What, um, what did you dress up for as Halloween? For Halloween. Uh, okay, so actually people gave me shit because they said I didn't even bother to dress up, but I went as a hipster Paul Bunyan, which. <laughs> It's literally me dressed how I normally dress, but I wear a woolen knit cap the entire day. And then I took markers and I had the kids all draw tattoos on me. Um, but like, I actually had like a giant hatchet. I don't know why I'm showing you my arm. I turned the video off, like all the way down my arm. And it made me realize that I actually want that tattoo. And then I had a PBR can that hasn't washed off yet. So I, I taught class today with a giant PBR can tattoo, which I think I also want. So I think I'm just going to get full sleeves. <laughs> I dig it. That's very but, on brand for you. Yeah. So I didn't really dress up, I guess, but it was good. 
It was John, good. did you dress up? Uh, no, I was a real square and I sat in my home office and wrote some code. Boo. Nerd. Get it? It was a joke because yeah. I said boo. Anyways. Uh, <laughs> what did you go as, Grace? Halloween pun. Uh, Bob and I went to a meat fest dressed as Bob and Linda Belcher of Bob's nice. Burgers. And nice. we made the Texas Chainsaw Massacred Burger. Which had uh, habaneros, uh, yes, and and melted cheese curds. It was delicious. Do you have Ooh. the Bob's Burgers cookbook? We do. Yeah, we do too. It's awesome. It really is. It's really good. So if you haven't made the Texas Chainsaw Massacred Burger yet in your house, Jeff, I would definitely recommend that one. I'm going to check it out, but um, I think we can easily declare Bob's Burgers cookbook the official cookbook of major revisions. Oh hell yes! I can't. John, do you have this cookbook? I do not, but I can. I can acquire it. All right, let's do it. As long as as long as I can get someone from the Upper Midwest to send me some cheese curds. Oh sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. Cause you you don't want to get them here. No. No. Well, uh, I was. You got I was up, up in Minneapolis. I was up in Minneapolis last week. I should have gotten some then. How was Minneapolis? It's a delight. It is a great town. I really, I really like it. Um, I mean, I'm biased, I but it's one of the best places on earth. So, yeah. <laughs> no, like, I think that like the awesome thing about it is like it feels very, um, you know, kind of like new and hip, but not like crazy and crowded. Yeah. And for someone who doesn't really like cities, that's like the perfect city for me. Yeah. It, it is the biggest city that I would feel comfortable living in. I know it's like the 20th or 21st most populous, but it just feels like a perfect limit where it's like, okay, this is enough people. I'm good with this. <laughs> but no more. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't know. Like, I feel like I could totally live there. Um, my wife hates the cold, and so she would probably shoot me. Um, <laughs> oh, God. But. At least since it's non-lethal, you're still going to be in the Midwest. Yes, yeah, sure. <laughs> I have a long-term goal to get both of you out here. Uh, well, yeah, okay. All right. Let's do it. I listen. Talk. I I love the Midwest. We'll, we'll talk offline. Perfect. <laughs> so. Hey, so what are we talking about today? We're talking about freaking everything because as a second anniversary special special show, we're gonna do our first. Mailbag show. Mail talk. Mail talk. Hey, the mail's here. That means we get to see our old friend, Mailbox. Woo! What is mailbag? Um, we're going to answer a series of email questions, tweets, um, and random comments people have made at me about the show um, from both ESA and the Forest Sat Conference that I went to, and also anything that you guys have as well, because it's weird to me but people listen to the show and like they talk yeah. to me about it and the other weird thing is that i can't tell stories anymore because people are like yeah jeff i know you've mentioned that on the podcast <laughs> and i'm not creative or interesting as a person so like i don't have anything to talk to people about anymore you're using all your best material i know like i don't have any i don't have anything else to say so. so can I can I ask an honest question about this? Yeah. Like, 
You guys both have these like great stories about people coming up to you at conferences and talking to you about the podcast. No one ever talks to me. Am I am I unapproachable? Like John, no, John you're John. you're right. You're writing code on Halloween, John. Yeah. <laughs> you need to get out more. Yeah. Apparently. Actually, no, but um, I, some, of, so, some of my friends have told me that they listen to our podcast, so I, I felt very proud about that. That's true. Well, there you but, go. Well, and, and as I shared with you all earlier, I recently found out that two of our loyal listeners are my parents. So uh, whether we choose to include that in our, our subscriber counts or not, uh, thanks, Mom yes, and Dad. Yes. Shout out. They count. They, <laughs> hey, they count as two. Heck yeah. yes, they do. They better be sub- both subscribing and not just like listening on one feed. Like subscribe, rate, and review, all right? <laughs> That's <thinks> right. So. <laughs> we you hear main- that, Wendy? Maintain <laughs> that five-star sub- review. <laughs> oh, no, now she's going to email me and say, how do I do that, Grace? But I'm actually gonna I'm gonna check the iTunes reviews right now and see if we have any other additional stuff on there. Well, so while you are doing that, we have some questions from folks, and I think one that we've perhaps all gotten at some point is how do you make time to do a podcast? So how do we find the time? How do you all find the time? I mean I guess this kind of like goes back to like uh, something that I think we probably said from our very first episode is like, uh, you know, this is like me hanging out with two of my best friends. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I don't I don't know what that says about the rest of my social life that, (laughs) uh, you know, that I on a regular basis, you know, spend an hour you know, talking to my friends from grad school. Um, but y'all are great people and, and I like it. And, uh, even if no one listened, that would make it worth it to me. Absolutely. I think that is something that we said on the first, our first episode, we said, Hey, this is an experiment. And if no one listens, that's fine, but it's an opportunity for us to stay in touch. Yeah. So. Cause if you, if you call it a podcast, it's not weird. Right. Well, and we're, we're in our 30s, and so it's perfectly appropriate for us to have podcasts. Yeah, it's like, weird to make new friends in your 30s anyway, so you got to kind of, <laughs> you can't oh, hell yes. really start over. <laughs> Hit a point, and you're done. Yeah, you, you've really leaned into who you are at that point, so yeah. you kind of have to embrace it. <laughs> yeah. There's no, uh, but I mean, you know, I think it's just like, it feels like when we if we go a couple weeks or so without recording, which I think this is the longest we've actually went without recording in a while. We all mm-hmm. like kind of coalesce at the same time via the Slack channel. When are we recording? We should do something. <laughs> like it seems to be like we've already kind of got it ingrained in us to try to do something at least once every two or three weeks. Um, but you know, like field work stuff gets in the way or, you know, start a semester stuff, but I think we've done pretty well with it. I think it's, and after a while, it just builds momentum because I think at this point, like we have all these things that we want to do shows on. And I think, um, you know, that makes it interesting, too. And I think, I mean, it is good. I think we all genuinely get along, too. Like we, like John and I were joking on the episode or last episode of trying to find something we really genuinely disagree on. Um, <laughs> to make like hot take radio, you know, and it's. It actually was kind of difficult. <laughs> so, 
I don't know what that. Maybe that would make the show like more. I don't know. Maybe we get more viewers if we were more argumentative. But I think it would be less of a genuine show. Oh my gosh, that sounds so stressful. Let's not argue. Um, I know, right? I know, right? Like, <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, I don't know. I guess like we we tried to make it. It's not a high priority for us, but it's like a priority, right? Like obviously, other stuff always comes, you know, kind of first. But yeah. No, absolutely. It's uh, it, it, it's like the perfect mix of friend and hangout time with Ashley getting to say, oh, hey, that was work because I put that on my CV. So Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> no, it's cool. It's, um, yeah, well, okay. So follow up for you guys then. What is the weirdest thing to come from having a podcast now? Like what's been the weird, either weirdest experience or best experience or just anything? Um, I recently had a student in one of my classes. She's wonderful. But sort of out of nowhere came up to me after class and was like, by the way, I found your podcast online completely separate. And I listen to it all the time and it's great. And I had this minor moment of panic where I was like, have I ever been upset about my class on the podcast? Like, have I said things? <laughs> Is that inappropriate? Sometimes I swear. Oh gosh, I shouldn't do that. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> I think it's okay, and that's awesome that other people are listening. I'm I'm waiting for the day to see one of our stickers on something of someone who I don't know. That will be the like the next level up of knowing we made it. Like oh heck yes, we've already hit the level where like people I don't know come up and like introduce themselves to me. Or, like, I was at a poster presentation, like, giving a, a talk, or not a talk, but, like, a, in the poster presentation, like, talking to someone, and they mentioned, like, something about the show, and I had never met this person. I was like, okay, that's weird. But awesome. But, yeah, awesome. Yeah, totally. It was great. Weird awesome. Please don't not come talk to us. We love Yeah, it. no, totally. And, um, but yeah, so that's going to be the next level for me, is just seeing one of our stickers on something, which would be difficult, because I think I only gave them out to, like, maybe 20 or 25 people. But uh, <laughs> I have a stack right here on the desk. Um, and some of them don't hold up in the rain, so I'm going to order some vinyl ones next time. The, yeah. the, the small ones are great, though. Grace, thank you for making these. Of course. No, the, the, the big ones don't hold up in the rain. There was, a, long story short, where I had to get them printed at ISU Printing Services, they wouldn't give me vinyl ones in that size at that short of a notice, because sometimes I don't plan well. Sorry. I see. Yeah. So. John, what's so what the... a... Oh, go, go. ahead. I was going to say, what other questions have we gotten? Oh, sure. Um, so I want to visit another one that we got, or I got from ESA, which was, why don't we do more podcasts about classic ecology papers? And if we did, which ones do you guys think we should do? Because there were definitely some suggestions I got from folks. But I, I want to hear your thoughts. These are our most popular episodes, though. Which I kind of think is odd. But awesome. Well, why don't we do more? Probably because we didn't know if people would like them. Now we do. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So what papers would you all do? We will do more. Thank you for the question. Yeah, um, they do take a lot more planning than a lot of our other episodes. Yeah, they do. Um, like we actually have to read stuff and have intelligent <laughs> thoughts about it. Yeah. 
That's fair because this episode took literally 15 minutes to plan. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what, what, what would you guys do? Like, what would you, the ones that you would want to cover? You'd well, I guess for me, uh, one thing that we've been thinking a little bit about in my lab and, and with one of my new PhD students is a lot about how to measure community stability. Okay. And mm. think about that in, yeah. in changing and with perturbations. And so I think maybe going back to some of maybe the classic like May 1972 or 1974 papers would be a place uh, I would want to start. Yeah, I haven't read the, any of those in a long time. Yeah. Shit, I want to do that now. Gee, we, we should chat. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, I'll, ju- I'll just leave it at that. You, we should chat. You're thinking a lot about community stability too? Uh, yeah, and, um, I know how to do some cool shit with community stability that isn't published yet, so we should talk about oh, it. Oh, heck yes. Okay, good. Looking forward to that. Nice. And there was a great illustration of also why we do this podcast. Yeah, sure. <laughs> John, John, what would you want to do if you wanted to throw some more stuff in here? Like, what would you do as far as classic papers? Um, so I think that I would probably, so one of the things that, um, is probably like my biggest hobby horse at the moment um, is trying to, you know, think about how to like bridge or form, you know, more links in the continuum between theoretical and applied ecology. Okay. Um, And one of the, one of the things where places where I think that there's um, some opportunity there uh, and, and also, because I like talking about theoretical theoretical stuff, um, one of the places where I think there's some opportunity is talking about coexistence theory. And so I'd probably want to talk about, uh, you know, Chesson's, I mean, I guess it's not as classic as like our, you know, 1953 and, you know, whatever papers, um, but it's classic enough, I think. I... Um think you don't need to be old to be a classic yeah that was going to be my question is should we do because it seems like we intentionally pick some like real deep cuts (laughs) modern classics modern classics yes modern classics of love (laughs) yeah i mean that that'd be a fun thing you know what's what's the most influential paper that's been published in the last 20 years in your research that okay fantastic another series of episodes okay all right yeah let's yeah. think about that then so let's put the cutoff at the year 2000 all right I let's can do, do that it. okay shit what did i do oh uh, i think i think the chess and paper works for that by the way i think it's 2000 yes is, is his big <laughs> the the big kind of like i mean he has some earlier stuff that lays out aspects of it but i think the like big kind of synthetic paper is chess in 2000 all right, Jeff, what would be your classic ecology paper? Dude, I don't know now. I'm trying to think, like, um, I know the paper, and I can't think of the freaking name. Um, there's a World Forest Productivity paper from 2008 that is full of holes, but it's, like, a big touchstone that might be pretty good. I'm also getting into a lot of, like, disturbance stuff lately. Can, can I just take a moment to say, you said 2008, and I was like, that's super recent. And then I had a moment going, God, that was a decade ago. Yeah, it was a decade <laughs> ago. 
Yeah. <laughs> your your incoming students are from this century now. Oh no 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> Think about that. We're not going there. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Oh these youths. Mm -hmm. Oh man, see, okay, so when we first started thinking this, I always I wanted to go back and visit some of these like productivity and um, papers from like the eighties. But that's not gonna be recent enough now because that's almost forty years old now. So yeah. Anyways. Hmm. Okay, yeah, let me think on this. I like I like this though. Modern classics. Alright, so what's another question we've gotten? Um, so one is on here, the, um, another follow-up from ESA was, how do we actually record this podcast? I think that's Jeff's question. Well, John sits across town from me, and he has a laptop, <laughs> and uh, Grace is in the Midwest, which is full of corn and sadness this time of year, <laughs> and, and college football. That's so accurate. Seems big there. Do you know how hot it is here right now? too hot it's like 72 holy the, shit i know climate change sucks um so we've already we had do? our first snow hey like hey, a month I'm ago just, yeah i'm just gonna point out one reason that the midwest might be less sad is that last i saw uh steve king might get voted out i know he's my district representative right now vote for shulton oh my gosh he's amazing i know none of y'all are gonna hear this probably before the voting, and you're not in Iowa's fourth, but go vote. <laughs> if you're in Iowa's fourth. Everyone vote. <laughs> oh, you, you, okay, well, we're in Virginia 5, where the um, Republican challenger writes Bigfoot porn. <laughs> I'm not yeah, joking. Yeah, but he doesn't love Nazis. <laughs> Are you sure? Uh, well, um... Uh, oh, he doesn't publicly love Nazis. Uh, he doesn't publicly disavow them. <laughs> and he writes Bigfoot porn. I'm not joking on that. That is a no. real fact. That's like the, yeah. So how the podcast works is that <laughs> we... <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for bringing us in, Jeff. Thank, is, thank you. Is, is we use Google Hangouts because um, Skype is wonky. And so Google Hangouts, we basically start a Google Hangouts call. We each have um, a program called Audacity, which is an open source sound recording program. And I also have a, a miniature four track recorder here, like a digital four track recorder. But one of us does a countdown and we all hit record on whatever we're recording on at the same time. And uh, those create WAV files. Um, the WAV files we upload to Google Drive and then I mix them. And I hopefully, I think they've gotten better over time, but mixing, you know, three independent wave files based on recording, you know, we've got like pretty decent mics now. Um, you know, we could always get better on that, but we, you know, none of us have perfect soundproof uh, recording studios at our houses, but you know, we do okay. I mean, I think they got better. The first 10 episodes are a little sketch. I get that. But, um, yeah, we put everything yeah, together. That's our B track. Yeah. Like so the B side. Yeah. 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 And then, like, you can put everything, like, in Audacity, and you basically just have three files, and it's just a matter of, like, making the levels kind of work together and then running um, basically a process that's supposed to, like, smooth them out and make them get rid of the noise. And then from that, to basically make the show free, I make it more complicated, and I use uh, archive.org, and archive uh, hosts the MP3 files, and then I hard code what is called an RSS feed, 
uh, via XML. There's a lot of abbreviations in this. I feel I could feel you like my own class through the microphone and speakers, your eyes glazing over. <laughs> but an RSS file or RSS feed via XML tells your podcast, uh, you know, equipment, whatever you're using, whether it be Google Podcast or iTunes or whatever, where everything exists in space and brings it to you. Um, so I have to, I just write out the file myself personally, like in an editor and then post it via GitHub and then GitHub hosts that. And so for this weird combination of archive.org, Weebly, which hosts our webpage and GitHub via FeedBurner, which is another Google thing. There's a lot of Google stuff in here. Those four things combined to tell where the podcast exists in space and brings it to your phone or your iPod or your whatever device. And you can listen to it, and it doesn't cost us anything to host it. It just takes, you know, probably a couple Your ingenuity. Hours. Yeah, it was really just like, I don't want to pay for this. How can we make this free? And um, so at this point, it's just, it's pretty streamlined. It's just a matter of making the time every week, you know, or to, whenever to record a podcast and then to edit it down. So. so can I tell you all kind of a funny story about a habit that I've developed from recording this podcast? Yeah. So... An old radio trick that radio announcers use is that they talk with their hands while they're announcing to make themselves more dynamic while they're talking, right? You do that too? <laughs> I do that. And, and so I, I do that while we're recording because I'm trying to not, you know, to be more dynamic. Well, so recently, last week, um, I had to have a phone call, a phone conference with my... Um, <laughs> This, this is great. With a donor who is giving, it's wonderful. They've, they've um, created a lecture series that I'm going to help run for women in water sciences at Iowa State. I'm really excited. Um, and so I was talking with the donor. My department chair was there and another sort of senior member of my department. And I was there leading the call and realized the whole time because I was on a call that I was using my hands and being very emphatic and talking with my hands and moving all over the place. And we got off the phone call and I just realized these two men, my department chair and this, this other professor were just staring at me. And finally they were like, what the hell was that? <laughs> and so I had to explain to them. This whole this whole style for recording the podcast, and then it made me sound more engaged on the phone. But anyways, it's super embarrassing. So watch yourselves. <laughs> no, I, I I know I already do that. So yeah. <laughs> and this is why I don't turn on my video when we're recording because I look like an idiot. <laughs> See, I started that to say bandwidth because. <laughs> <laughs> We, if we were, if we we did we when we started we recorded this during the day and that quickly became like totally unmanageable. We're like, yeah, that's not going to be able to happen. But that did have the advantage of recording it at a university where you had super fast internet. Yeah. Um, and we've only been able to do one, I think, in person. Um, but maybe maybe ESA twenty nineteen, we might be able to do another one in person, which would be cool. So. Mhm. I'll be there. Be I'm planning on it. All right. All right so, what other questions do we have? I have an email one for you. Um, what are your thoughts on crowdfunding science? And as a follow-up, do you think there's enough for a full episode here? But start off, John, Grace, what do you think of crowdfunding for science? So, I think, I mean, obviously there are people who are successful at it. Um, 
I think it wouldn't work f- very well for me because most of what I am trying to pay for is myself and other people's time. Um, I think it, I think it really works best when you have, um, a, you know, an experiment that needs to happen. You know, you need to pay for some materials, you need to pay for, um, you know, travel expenses and stuff like that. Um, because those things are tangible and, um, you can, you know, you can put a, you can put a price tag on them that you can, that probably, you know, in, in a lot of ecology, especially field ecology is, you know, pretty reasonable that you can expect, um, to be able to put together a sufficient number of small donations to meet. Um, I don't cost that much money, but I cost a lot more money than, uh, than I would feel comfortable, uh, trying to put, um, you know, it would take an awful lot of hundred dollar donations to fund me for very long. (laughs) Well, and let's be honest, John, you expect things like health insurance and whatnot. So, you know, you're not cheap, but (laughs) it's all about those fringe benefits. Yeah, th- those cost a lot of money. They do. Yeah, I don't know. I think that crowdfunding is an awesome deal if you can, you know, good good gig if you can get it. Um, although recently finding out that my parents are two of our loyal listeners means that maybe that's not something I want to do. Um, <laughs> but I, uh, you know, one thing that strikes me is crowdfunding is an excellent vehicle. It can be a great way to get people engaged in science, um, if that's one of your um, goals or motivations, but it's potentially a band-aid or a solution for a symptom. And the problem is a lack of science funding in this country. And I understand that that's a solution for now, and we all need Mm -hmm. to survive now and do the science that needs to be done. And there's a lot of science that, gosh darn it, right now needs to be done. Um, but the, the bigger problem is a lack of science funding and opportunity. See, I, I am, am generally pro crowdfunding. And the reason being is that I don't think it's meant to, to do something like maybe like I was talking about, like fund somebody kind of full time. I think it, it fills in this niche where like if you think about projects and project size, um, you know, there are funding mechanisms to do big science, right? Granted, the funding rates suck, and, and, and I agree with you, Grace, that we need to do a better job of that and fund the things that need to get done. But, you know, there are vehicles, you know, the 200000 dollar million-dollar grants. There are at least vehicles for that. And then when you think on the order for, like, students um, in particular, you know, there are, like, real small money things to support, like, travel, right? There should be more of that. But, you know, most departments um, will have, like, $750 travel awards or something that students can go for. But there's this hole, right, for smaller projects, um, you know, in that on the order of, you know, the five to $20,000 range, right? Um, oh, yeah. Oh, it's almost like NSF had a program. What was it called? They used to fill that. Oh, right. The D-Dig. <laughs> exactly. But so there, there are these holes for these small programs where maybe, you know, but like crowdfunding offers you the flexibility, one, to fill in kind of in that area, but also to do maybe stuff that's different 
right? Like there's just this flexibility to it um, that I think you're right. It, it is a band-aid in a way and it's not, I don't want everyone going that direction. I totally can see all the potential pitfalls here, but just because it's different, like I don't want it to be something we're all totally afraid of. And I think there's people have done some pretty cool things. You know, if you raise $2,500 to go sample all the butterflies and, Central Park. I don't know. I just made that up. Maybe somebody did that. <laughs> um, you know, I've seen some really cool stuff where students um, got funding for projects to go to, you know, do like soil core samples and, and somewhere crazy, right? Um, you know, there's some cool stuff out there. But there's, yeah, I can see the hesitation too. Um, no, I mean, no no doubt. Um, and, you know, if if I did more work that you know, $5,000 could put like a, you know, a big dent in, um, and could make the difference between me being able to do that project or not. I would totally be more engaged in, in crowdfunding. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I just don't think that, you know, my work fits the profile of, um, the, the sorts of things that are likely to be successful with that model. No, that's that's fair. That's fair. I I I am only really of the opinion now that it's really like kind of like small projects or really hyper local stuff or anything that like Grace, like you mentioned as well, that you know, getting people invested in it, in the process of science. Um, yeah, and that can have huge benefits. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I I would like to learn more about it. And I think it would be interesting. You know, thinking about things we want also want to do in the future. We get more. Guest, in, you know, guest interviews on here of, of talking to someone who's done successful crowdfunding campaigns and what that looked like. Um, and I would love to hear about yeah. their motivation about why. Was it out of necessity? Yeah. Like, I have no other way to do this? Or, like, you know, why? It would be really cool to know. I, I know yeah, that. So if you, oh, go ahead. So, so if you have done a successful crowdfunding campaign, we'd love to talk to you. Yes. Totally. I, I know that I feel a little uncomfortable with it, and I know I shouldn't. Like, even doing, like, the Earth Science Women's Network fundraiser last year, like, Day of Science, like, I kind of I felt weird, like, writing emails and, and asking people for money. And I don't know why. I, I guess because it was like I was personally asking them. Like, it's, like, a, a layer different than writing, like, a grant where it's very obvious that we're all asking for money. Okay. Um, I don't know. Like, it just felt, it felt weird to me. Like, it's just something that I wasn't comfortable with. Maybe that's just in my own head. But um, even though it was obviously for a great cause and it was good, it was just, I don't know, still something about it felt weird to me to be asking directly people for money. Well, it's certainly a different type of ask. When you're writing a grant, you're asking to be evaluated on the merit of your ideas yeah, and then your ability to carry out those ideas. And in a crowdfunding campaign, that type, not necessarily that level, but that type of evaluation is not necessarily always there it's a different type of evaluation that the potential funder is using so that and that's not something we're necessarily trained to think about interesting yeah i think we should um go more into it that'd be interesting all right let's go back to the list all right so this is this is one one that i would like us to tackle um what are your thoughts on the ethical quandaries of uh, just ecological research in general or, or yours in particular. Um, and, you know, this, the sorts of, uh, 
uh, you know, conflicts or, you know, questions that, that could arise in the course of your work? Grace, you want to take this one first? Oh, gosh. Um, I can if you want. I, yeah, otherwise I was just going to ask, what did you mean by ethical quandaries? I, well, well I mean, so I can't, I can't guess the, the, the questioner's intention um, with perfect accuracy. But, you know, some of the things that I think about um, on the, you know, sort of in general about, you know, population ecology, you know, conservation biology, someone who's interested in um, the dynamics of um, populations when rare is, uh, you know, like what, um, you know, does, does, does doing research on, um, a system potentially have negative consequences for that system, right? Like, you know, if, if you, you know, if you, um, you know, sample something lethally, um, you know, you, you might be, uh, sort of reducing the, the population size and, um, that might be, you know, that might have negative consequences for the, you know, for that, that organism, that population, that species. Okay. That makes sense. So Jeff, so, is that how you were interpreting it? So I can, I can add more on the context of the question if you want. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, go for it, <clears throat> please. So how it was written. Uh, this is another subject that I'd love for you guys to tackle as an exploration of the ethical quandaries that can arise from one's research. This is something that I've been pondering a lot recently, and um, they talk about their dissertation work where they're dealing with, you know, populations of, uh, or population ecology of birds related to outdoor domestic cats. And, you know, this is, this is a polarized and controversial topic with some really interesting and chewy moral and philosophical questions that arise when one starts to think about how to manage wildlife populations by controlling populations of an introduced species. Mm. Um, so, you know, I'd be interested in learning to learn about other ethical and moral dilemmas, dilemmas that ecologists have faced in the course of their research and how they have navigated those issues. Um, so, yes, you, you know, they would definitely want to differentiate from a discussion surrounding responsible conduct of research and ethical behavior within the community, you know, but while that's not an unrelated topic necessarily, I think more interested in kind of that nexus, you know, growing out from there. Sure. Okay. That helps. Um, hmm. That is an excellent question. So I'll give you one. Um, yeah. So we're doing a big manipulative experiment and, um, we were discussing this today, uh, you know, we're going to kill a bunch of trees, bunch of trees. And, you know, today we were talking, you know, it's like deep theoretical ecology discussion about, well, how do you actually distribute, you know, what do we want? How do we pick the trees to kill? Like, what is that supposed to look like? Like if you do a truly random kill, is that even ecologically relevant? Right? Like what would, just kill trees at random you know most of the things that actually kill trees if you think about like beach bark disease obviously target beech trees um emerald ash borer targets ash trees 
um, you know, the conversation is talking about, oh, well, how do we actually pick the trees that we're going to kill? But, you know, ethically, I mean, we are killing forest trees, right? That is obviously something to consider. And so whichever way that we go is going to have ramifications down the line. And it is, it is I mean, it's, it's, I guess, you know, we obviously feel different about plants than we do animals. And we're clearly not harming endangered species of any kind. It's on controlled land that everyone owns, or that we own, and it's all good. Like, we're not killing public trees or anything. But um, it is still, like, an issue that we don't take lightly. Um, and I can only imagine what it's like for people who work with wildlife in particular you know studying rare and endangered species and we think about uh, what do you call the, the museum specimens that you get this catalog species or something right like where they used to you have to where you used to have to kill one voucher put it in voucher a, species yeah, yeah 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 so like well if you found like the one you know beetle in the world like that <laughs> you got to kill it and put it in the museum that seems weird, right? Like, I mean, now they let you use, like, a picture, um, which seems better, but I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm also, also, I think about this from a financial perspective, which I know is different, but the amount of trees we're killing, it's a lot of timber that we're going to leave in the woods to rot. A lot of timber. Probably, I don't want to say that. It's a lot of timber. <laughs> Well, you know, Jeff, in, in the case of of like what you are talking about with, you know, killing trees for a manipulative experiment, you know, probably the 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 most ethical thing to do is also the most scientifically reasonable thing to do. And that's to, you know, to kill trees in a way that mimics natural disturbances. Uh, you know, and so, and so maybe you want to simulate beech bark disease or emerald ash borer or wind throw or, um, you know, any of another, you know, host of um, different types of disturbance that might be experienced in that, you know, in that local system. It's true. But at the end of the day, you're still killing things. You you know you're you're still killing stuff, um, but I think you know I think when you're killing stuff for science, you want to you know make sure that you are doing it in such a way that you maximize the likelihood that you're going to make an important discovery out of it. Right, and we we have definitely done you know our our very due diligence on running all of the stuff ahead of time to make sure that we do enough of a treatment where we can get a good answer, you know, based on you know, statistical power test, significance test, prior work, and, you know, making sure we calibrate everything against, you know, every other existing piece of knowledge we know in the field so that we're not just killing above and beyond, right? Like we, you know, have really thought this out. Like this is the area that we're going to focus on and we're only going to you know, do this much. We're not just killing indiscriminate, right? Like, so I think, the ethical concern there, like, I feel like we've done a good job covering, like, we're only going to do this area and we've made sure to distribute this well and we've picked areas that are not going to impact, um, you know, other species, like, you know, it's 
you know, we've done like checked all those boxes. And I think that that in a way, I think gets to part of this question, at least, you know, from my perspective as, you know, working in forest, um, you know, we've picked areas that don't have endangered species. We've tried to eliminate all those externalities as, as much as possible and, and focus on and do the minimum that we can to get the result that we want. And like you said, to, to be able to find something and do something relevant. So, yeah. Which certainly highlights that there is an ethical way to go about ecosystem manipulation and an unethical way to do it. And, and, and by trying to avoid all those externalities and thinking about them beforehand is certainly a much more ethical way to go about doing it. Um, yeah, it's hard when you manipulate whole, whole ecosystems. You know, that, that cat question is really interesting, though, um, because it, it gets at not just sort of like what is ethical from the wildlife perspective, but like, you know, what can you tell people about how to treat their pets? Um, and, and in a sense, like it, you know, it it is a little bit different than a lot of the ethical questions, um, you know, because we, you know, we think about like, most of the time we think about like, well, what's reasonable to kill? <laughs> um, you know, what, what's, what's reasonable to manipulate in a system, um, you know, so that we can, so that we can learn about it. And, you know, we, we believe fundamentally that, um, you know, manipulating a system provides an opportunity to learn about that kind of system so that uh, we don't screw it up unintentionally someplace else. Yeah. Um, but this, you know, this really gets at, you know, this, this issue of cats and, and, and birds really gets at, um, you know, in a sense, like, you know, human rights, um, uh, you know, and, and what, you know, people, um, you know, can and should be able to do with their pets. Um, and so I'm not sure that I have a good answer to that, except to acknowledge that it's, it's complex. But also that maybe it is important to consider those types of ethical questions in our research as well, just sort of as a broader point. That that's not necessarily something that is always happening. Yeah, I mean, what what are some ways that you would, in practice, consider that uh, those types of questions in your in your work? Well, I think one thing that we could do in practice as scientists is make it a part of our uh, whether we're formally writing a proposal for grant funding or not, or whether just writing, say, a prospectus to approach starting to do a project with someone or to get our own ideas out on paper is to make that a part of your formal proposal or prospectus writing process. Hmm. Th thinking about the ethics? Yeah. And what you're proposing to do to the environment or a species or fill in the blank. Yeah. Yeah, and definitely this is something that's more thought out, I think when you're talking about um, 
you know, medicine and biology where you have like a lot of mouse models or, mm-hmm. um, you know, any type of uh, human controlled experiments or medical drug trials or any of that stuff. Right. Like an Aya cook for the environment. Yeah. Yeah. There's inevitably somebody who's thought about this far more. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I don't want to suggest that like that stuff isn't relevant, but I think that this, like the, you know, this cats and birds question gets at something a little bit broader because it deals with sort of like the, not just like, how is it ethical to treat research subjects? It deals with, you know, how it, sort of like the ethical um, quandary of how do you implement a research result? Like, Oh yeah. You, you know, like, like presumably the, you know, part, part of the, you know, the, these findings are going to be, well, you know, domesticated cats eat birds mm-hmm. and, you know, that is going to affect different populations uh, of birds in different ways, potentially ones that um, we care an awful lot about because um, they, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, in experiencing population declines, maybe they are, um, you know, culturally significant or even economically significant if they're, if they're game species, although, uh, most game birds are big enough that they probably stand a good shot against your average 10 pound cat, but um, <laughs> they kill a lot of birds. 10 pounds. How thin is your cat? cat. Yeah. <laughs> my, my cat's pretty thick. <laughs> you go with them thick boys. <laughs> I mean, Achilles is missing a whole arm and he's not even 10 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why if he had that arm back, then how big is that arm? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I, so you bring up an interesting thought here, you know, because, you know, 99 out of 100 papers you write, no one's going to care. But there's the offhand thing in the discussions or conclusions where if we make any management recommendations that somebody picks up on that shit, you know, and then implements it, right? Um, no one's ever done anything with it, but I've clearly, I've clearly written shit about what people should do, like rhododendron and, and, you know, the mountains here, um, people still aren't killing it yet, but, um, at least to the level that we probably should. That's my important. That's me talking to you, America. We really need to address this. Problem. <laughs> it's out of hand. Burn it. And he doesn't mean your ornamental we rhododendron. Don't listen to John. We can't burn it. That's going to get out of control. What we need to do, we, we need, well, we need, maybe we should burn it. Never mind. Okay. Um, no, but like, you know, you write something and you just kind of cast it off. Um, I mean, I don't think, I don't think we do that, but I'm sure like, oh, I'm talking out my ass here, but like, you know, you, if you make any kind of recommendations for that, right, you got to always consider, like be thoughtful of that when you write it, you know, maybe somebody picks this up and is like, oh, this is what we should do. Yeah. I've, I've spent a lot of time since I moved here to Iowa and in my job spending way more time than I have ever talking to watershed and lake managers um, and talking to like lake associations. And it's 
that point that you were just making, Jeff, about like really being careful about what you say and how you cast your work or the implications of it has never been more real to me. Because uh, one of the things we're working on is trying to predict harmful algal blooms. And um, if you didn't know this, Iowa has a lot of those because we have a nutrient problem. And mm-hmm. that's putting it lightly. And so we have a ton of harmful algal blooms everywhere all across the state. And they're harmful to wildlife, but they're also harmful to humans. Um, and there's a lot of like, oh, great, we want to take your early warning system and implement it now. And going, whoa, 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 no, wait, this is like, it worked in an experimental setting. <laughs> like, we got to test this. And trying to also walk that line between, um, no, this could be an exciting tool, but it's not there yet. But we're working on that. So please don't just be like, yeah, it's another scientist, whatever. They're just trying to equivocate, 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 right? Uh, <laughs> And, and that is really tough. And that's, I, I, I think I didn't take those, like you were saying, those statements in the discussion, those drawing it out to the broader scale, you know, like this could be important for fill in the blank yeah. management X, Y, Z, but, um, and like these people aren't reading the papers, but that's the presentations you're giving as well. And, and that's tough to balance that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I think what's really important is thinking about you know who your stakeholders are, um, you know who who's who's your who's the audience that could actually, you know, use this information and take action based on it. Um, you know, what are their what are their perspectives? What are their needs? Um, you know, what are the things that if they knew would change how they do their jobs? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or, or, or maybe, you know, maybe it's not even their jobs. Maybe it's, um, you know, how they, you know, treat their pets. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's a complicated situation, but I, I think that, um, yeah, you know, not, not just thinking about what your, you know, what your results imply in a vacuum, but thinking about how to, um, you know, how, how a person with a stake in the situation, um, who's a non-scientist would, would react. Um, and that can be hard to anticipate. And, and so that's where, you know, cultivating these relationships with, um, you know, with non-scientists, um, with resource managers, with, um, you know, your, your, your cat own owning, you know, and like, you know, th- those are the types of things that, you, you know, that you can draw from to uh, to kind of think in a little bit more grounded way about um, how your research um, can really impact society. I mean, true, yeah. True. yeah, you can't always control who's going to read, you know, what you did and how they use it, but you can do your best to be thoughtful about it. Have I talked on this show about how I don't like cats? Uh, that might have been a secret that you've been keeping from our audience. I'm not a fan of cats. I don't think it's a secret. Yeah, I don't like cats. You know why? Because I, I don't trust them. Oh, hell no. Amen. They're not, they're not fully <laughs> domesticated. They're not domesticated, right? Because you put them back in the wild, they're like, okay, I'm just going to go eat birds. They don't need us, Right. Um, that toxoplasmosa stuff or whatever it is, 
Yeah. The fact that, like, it can infect you, you people, you cat owners, and make you do crazy stuff, and make you more prone to die in high-speed accidents, or well, the paper that came out last week showing that people who are infected by it are more likely to be entrepreneurial, which really just means, again, risk-taking behavior. Risk-taking. Yeah, that's all that is. <laughs> we can't trust cats, guys. And they're killing all the birds. Birds are... Make songs. Not my cat. Sweet. Yeah. Yeah, my my cat hasn't been outside in, like, pretty much since it was, like, a month old. But the problem is, is that you're already compromised because as cat owners, I don't want to say cat owner, whatever you, you know, I don't want to. I'm cat adjacent. Yeah. I cohabit with a cat. You're already infected. So you're already biased. I think John and I both strongly... Like, hold to the fact that our spouses are the cat people, and we cohabitate with the cats. <laughs> I'm just saying, you were probably still infected, and therefore compromised. And so yeah. whatever I say, your brain is going to tell you, well, that's wrong, because cats are amazing. I'm just saying. Jeff, if, if I engage in any strange <laughs> risk-taking behavior... Like going out on Halloween... Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay, so maybe I should say, I, it's not that I dislike cats. I do like cats. I had cats when I was a kid, so I'm probably infected and don't even know. Um, I'm just saying I don't trust them. I think that's a completely reasonable and grounded in fact way to behave around cats. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, mine tried to smother me in my sleep last night, so I'm right there with you. <laughs> I mean, I, I personally lean more towards dogs, and my dog is one of the dumbest dogs I've ever met, and I love her tremendously. She's real dumb. <laughs> Ditto. But, um, I know what y'all are talking about. Tater's a fucking genius. <laughs> <laughs> no, not June. Not June. Also, I don't know like who has been eating chicken wings and throwing the chicken bones out like across the neighborhood, but shame on you. <laughs> Um, I have a question for you guys, and yeah. if you want to do one of your questions, because I think some of these lists we should save for um, another episode, but um, if we were to re-record an episode, like if we were to revisit or maybe redo something from our deep catalog, do you have one in mind that you would would have would re-record or do over? Uh, so hard to improve upon perfection. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the obvious choice is the the, the mysterious lost episode on many. Yes. The, the lost, yeah. Which we can mix, but what it only it? has like two tracks of audio and not three, so there would just be like just jump jump cuts between John and Grace talking, and then not me. We'll we'll just make that like a one long outtakes episode. Yeah. But uh, is there anything that you think you would? Or maybe something to revisit if you don't want to, if you wouldn't re-record anything. Well, I might redraft my impact factor pool. Well, where are you going to get that impact factor draft? Twenty nineteen's coming. Perfect. Boom. Um, I mean, the one kind of obvious one is like the you know, really our first episodes, like the hundred questions in ecology, because um, I think that that was really a rich thing to talk about probably a really wise thing to pick for our first episode um but i think we've learned a lot about 
how to actually do a podcast. Uh, <laughs> Shit. It's weird that you say that because that was my thought. It was like I would totally revisit the 100 questions in ecology. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's the one that stands out to me just because I think that like, that's a really awesome thought experiment. And I don't know, I haven't gone back and listened to that episode since I confirmed that we didn't sound like complete assholes in it. Um, Speak for yourself. And, (laughs) (laughs) um, I said we, not, not just me. I I think I, we. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I just love that idea. Um, and I don't know. I think, I think it's something that kind of, at least in spirit, we should keep, you know, revisiting periodically. Grace, do you, do you have a different one? Cause if not, I think we just figured out we should probably re-record the first episode. Oh, I completely agree. Although I, I was just looking back on our website, majorrevisionspodcast.com, um, that, on episode 18, we talked about being on the job market, and we discussed Jeremy Yoder's piece, I found a tenure-track job, and here's what it took. And um, his take on that was that we, we didn't quite interpret it properly, and we had invited him on the show, and we have not followed up on that. So I oh, would yeah, like to do bad. that and talk about the, the job market a little bit more, but maybe when it's not so raw. Uh, yeah, we actually have a, a pretty amazing list of people who are interested and excited to come on the show and who I've totally dropped the ball. <laughs> but, but Jeremy's yeah. on that list uh, and some other people, I don't want to put them on blast here in case they've changed their mind. But um, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, that would be cool. And, and we reassure you, it's not you, it's us. Yeah. Well, it's, it's me. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> I, I was not willing to say that. I was really thinking it was us, but okay. We got Yeah. We got to figure out how to do it. Does, so like, yeah, you go back to the question about how you record a podcast, like getting someone in for an interview when you don't have like a real radio state, like studio is kind of difficult because you like, you want to make sure that they have a decent microphone and make sure you have that set up. And so that becomes like a non-trivial thing too. Um, and then yeah. if like we want to record, I have figured out how to record like an incoming line, but it's, um, you want to still make sure they have a good microphone. Cause that's why, like, if you listen to the first few episodes, the microphones suck. And so that's why they're not so great. And so I think that would also be a reason to record episode one again, <laughs> it would just sound better, but also like, <laughs> I like, the, I like this idea of revisiting, you know, this, if we were going to do something like a recurring theme on that, then that one would be a good one. Mm-hmm. to redo um, what about you guys do you have any any questions that you want to ask each other before we wrap up mm. do you have a favorite episode every episode is my favorite episode <laughs> um that was a lame question. I'm sorry. I feel and like I gave that, it a lame response. <laughs> I I really liked the impact factor draft one, and I really liked the how to do ecology one a lot. And I I really like the historical ones too. Honestly, I thought those were interesting. Yeah, I think those are a lot of fun. I don't know if they're my favorite, but I really like the ones where we talk about how to get into grad school and all of that because. 
the more I've been working with undergrads who are interested in grad school, I realized how much they're not getting that sort of information and mentorship. And so I guess I'm just really glad that we did that. And hopefully it's helped just even one person and figure out how to do the get into grad school thing. Yeah. Is there um, oh, yeah. anything that we left off on that? Like, should we revisit that? Should we do a third one to those? We did a third one. It was about the interview. Oh, that's right. So should we do a fourth one? Did we do a fourth one? Oh, getting into grad school. Three. Yeah. Okay. I changed the name, the nomenclature on that one. You know, I don't think that I would give different advice now about getting into grad school um, than I did roughly a year ago. But I think it'd be interesting once... uh, Should we be in the position where all of us have been on the other side uh, and, you know been involved in recruiting students and, um, you know, the admissions committees and things like that. Um, it'd be interesting to, to revisit those ideas and and see if any of our perspectives have changed. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. I was thinking that, is there anything that you guys feel like that you've recorded that you've changed your mind on radically? Also, um, we have a new one in our top five. The Culture of Ecology podcast has got shot way up and surpassed um, at least uh, everything but the Lindemann episode and episode one. So it's our number oh, three. Limnology winning again. Um, <laughs> no, that culture that culture episode was was pretty fire. That was great. Well, I I I always change my mind on things because I'm, I'm open to new arguments, but I don't know in terms of radically like shifted my opinion. 180. It's a good question. I'm still on the fence on this whole inter- intermediate disturbance thing. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you guys almost convinced me and then I, I don't think so anymore. Uh I can't even remember what I argued about that. So <laughs> it, it was marginal. Maybe tells- if I went back and re-listened, I would convince myself of what you guys said was. Yeah. Oh yeah, we're also well over four thousand downloads now, which is pretty cool. Hot diggity. Um. Or wait, is that only for that one week? Because that seems high. No, that's not. That's for the whole period. That's a lot. Cool. Thanks, guys. Um. Well, it has been fun reflecting on two years. Thank you all for continuing to listening. We're going to try continue to produce these episodes. Keep and with that, if you are interested in listening to them, you can find our episodes in a number of different places. Where are they, Jeff? Um, so we are on Google Play. We are on iTunes, Apple Podcasts. We are on the new Google Podcast app, which is not the best functioning app in the world, but still okay. Um, it's the only place that I can listen to 538 now, so that's why I switched over. Uh, um, we are also on Stitcher, and I believe TuneIn as well. Not 100% sure about that. Um, but you can also just find us on our website, which is MajorRevisionsShow.com. You can visit us on the Twitter at Major underscore Revisions. And we are also Major underscore Revisions on Insta as well. 
That's right. You can check out our coffee cups and pictures of our pets. <laughs> oh, do you have right. a picture? Do you have a picture of your Halloween costume? Yes. Are you gonna Are you gonna post it to the people? Sure. All right, I'm gonna post mine right now. Oh, Grace, you say us out. I'm gonna post a picture of. of all right. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. As always, you can find us in all those places for major revisions. This has been Jeff, John, and Grace, and we'll talk to you later. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still recording though.